Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. Hey, welcome to Marysville Christian Church today. Whether you're here in person or visiting online, we're glad you're with us. In our current series of What About? Overcoming Your Various Doubts That You Encounter at Different Stages in Life. You can find some of the previous sermons in our series on our Marysville website, marysvillechristian.org. And if there's a particular sermon that kind of stood out to you and really, you know, just scratched an itch that you have, maybe you want to share that with somebody that, uh, that might also be going through the same type of thing. I grew up on a dairy farm. Coffee was not allowed in our house. It was referred to as a dirty word because it's a dirty drink. It's black coffee, right? And that's just the way it was for me growing up. But since that time in hanging out with preachers, um, that's unique, not drinking coffee. Because preachers are notorious for taking their coffee, black or any other way. That's kind of like this particular image. Hey guys, what can I get for you? Uh, I'd like to get a large half-calf scalded almond milk latte, four pumps vanilla, one pump cinnamon with an extra half shot, sweetened with agave nectar at 167 degrees with room for cream. Okay, I'm for you. Uh, I'll take the same thing, but add a little reduced fat white chocolate drizzle to mine, and to mine as well. Two large half-calf scalded almond milk lattes, four pumps vanilla, one pump cinnamon, an extra half shot, sweetened with agave nectar at 167 degrees with room for cream, and reduced fat white chocolate drizzle. You know what? I think I just want to add some grapefruit honey yogurt scone shavings. Uh, I'll take some of those too, but I'll also add two and a quarter tablespoons of a drink that somebody returned because their name was misspelled. I don't know what David and I laugh more about, you know, Jose with an H or, uh, or the way that server was just wearing that gum out. I mean, she just was completely nonplussed by the whole thing and, and her memory was amazing. Research by the Huffington Post has actually concluded that there are over 80,000 different options for any one particular Starbucks order. That's just stupid. I'm, <clears throat> as, a, as a milk drinker, that's just dumb. And I don't even work there trying to remember their orders, right? The days of black coffee are gone. There are so many other options and variations now, not just at Starbucks, but in all of life. I'll tell you the story about my nephew on another day, but let's just say I would have loved to have been there the day that he filled out the HR survey. Some people grow up in a time when things were a lot more clear-cut and absolute. As I was kind of reviewing my notes this morning, the, an image came to mind of a of TV show almost 40 years ago by now with Archie and Edith. 
all in the family. I'm not sure we could have found a clip of Archie and Edith that would have been suitable to show on a Sunday morning in church, but let's just say in Archie's mind, life was very black and white, clear-cut and absolute. Right was right, wrong was wrong. There was responsibility for the choices that you made, and with those choices you made, there were consequences for those choices, and those consequences always involved accountability in some way, shape, or form, and yet all of those seemed to be gone the way of the tumbleweed and Roy Rogers and Dale Evans and other names from the past that others today just look at you with a raised eyebrow about. Society and culture change over time, sometimes for the better, in other ways not so much. Currently society is referred to as being a postmodern society. Others would more accurately, just call it compost, not postmodern. And truth, much like a Starbucks menu board, pretty much just revolves around everyone's own preference for whatever truth is or any other aspect of their life. And just like there were multiple options for a Starbucks coffee order, there's also multiple options when it comes to religion in people's minds. I mean, what about the doubts that we try to overcome because of, what about the claim that Jesus is the only way to heaven and that Christianity is the only religion? Now, that seems pretty narrow-minded to folks that are in a society that says, I'm not sure about anything. Or what about all the other religions like Muslims and Buddhists? What about people who've never heard of God or Jesus in the Bible? What's going to happen to them? Is Jesus really the only way. And how do you feel about that? Because, of course, for many people, our feelings determine what's real. Well, listen to what the apostles of Jesus claim. It's going to set the tone, if you will, with four different verses. I'll have them on the screen in front of you if you want. You can take a snapshot of it or you can you know, write it down or follow along. doesn't matter to me. But here's what the apostles claimed about Jesus. Even when what they claimed resort, resulted in torture and death, their story never wavered. Here's what the apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar in Rome, but Jesus. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Kind of like that revenant back from the dead. The writer of Hebrews would claim the same thing in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. <clears throat> The Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation, and here's the key phrase, to those who are waiting for him. The Apostle John was about as clear as you could be in 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, when this is what he wrote in his first letter to them. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only those who believe 
that Jesus is the Son of God. And one last one in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Peter gets even more explicit than that, if possible, that Jesus is the Son of God. When he says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The New Century Version's phrasing of that is kind of intriguing to me because he simply says it this way, Jesus is the only one who can save people. Again, pretty black and white, pretty explicit. No one else in the world is able to save us. You see, that apostle's message was consistent. Jesus is the only way to gain access to forgiveness of sins and experience coming back from the dead. Salvation. But what if the followers of Jesus just got carried away and, and they exaggerated and enlarged the story of what Jesus really taught? Well, listen to their message and see what you think. He claimed Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And he also claimed to be the only means of salvation. In John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus himself would say this, unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you'll die in your sins. Now you know as well as I do that people today are not used to that kind of in your face, two by four between the eyes, statement of absolute reality. And yet here Jesus is plainly saying, if you don't believe that I am who I claim to be, you'll die in your sins. Or a few chapters later in John 14, verse 6, he would just say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not only are we not used to hearing that kind of boldness and that kind of straightforward talk today, we find ourselves almost being offended by it somehow. It, it just makes us almost flinch. And yet it gets to the heart of questions like, is Jesus really the only way? And that may seem like a bunch of scriptures, and it may feel like I've just grabbed a scripture here and a scripture there out of context. But let me encourage you. Read the context. It's even more bold than the summary verses that I just had on the screen in front of you. Jesus actually claims to be God, living in the flesh, here among us. And as Christians, this is the very foundation of what our belief, our hope, and any kind of boldness or confidence or peace is built on. And it gives even more insight into why Jesus would say this before going back to the Father in heaven. Wherever you go, make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, if Jesus were really the only means of forgiveness, if Jesus were really the only revenant, that we have or the opportunity to come back from the dead if he were the only way that we have to be reconciled with God then it would only make sense wouldn't it that he would send people out 
as witnesses of his story. But what about those other religions? They have their own God. They have their own ways of worship. For some, it doesn't feel right that we would impose ours on them. Now, impose might be a rather strong concept because it carries with it connotations of the Crusades. Bow the knee before Jesus or we'll cut off your head. Oh, wait, that's not just Christians who said that. That's Muslim religion as well and other religions in this world. Stay with me on this one, okay? In the culture that we live in now, tolerance has become God. And intolerance is a mortal sin. Because in our age of tolerance, there's only one thing that will not be tolerated, and then that's intolerance toward any other opinion other than their opinion of tolerance. Like I said, you kind of had to stay with me there, but what it amounts to is I'm intolerant of your intolerance. And yet that's the circular reasoning that we live in. Some are offended, there's no doubt, by Christianity's exclusive claims. But understand this, all religious viewpoints make claims that are exclusive. Because if you think about it, even atheists and agnostics are absolute in their claims and their convictions. And they are also, because of their absoluteness, they're also exclusive in their claims. For example, when an atheist states, there is no God, that's kind of exclusive, isn't it? It's an absolute claim that excludes all other opinions except theirs. And... You know that's true if you've ever sat in a class taught by an atheist. Because you know how belittled you were made to feel for having an opinion different than theirs. When an agnostic, someone who believes there might be some unknown higher power, makes his claim that it's impossible to know God other than just as some unknown higher power, that same agnostic excludes the opinion of the atheist that says, nuh-uh. <laughs> I mean, you know, they don't say it that way, you know, because they've got too many, you know, degrees hanging on the wall. They're just more intelligent, more superior than the rest of us riffraff. But they're also exclusive of Christians and any other religion's view of God. You see, that's the nature of claiming that anything is the truth because by nature, then, that means that everything else has to be wrong if you're claiming that this is true. So in an effort to be inclusive and tolerant, some claim that all religions teach the same thing and are just different paths to the same destination. Now, lest you get wrapped up in thinking this is just some, some class on philosophy, my dad was anything, anything and everything far from being a philosopher. We're singing the song earlier about 
a good, good father, and I happen to look down at the back of my hands, and, and if you look at them, you'll see my dad's hand. And that's why I just had to stop singing for a while. Been 13 years since dad passed. But in trying to explain to him why I left the church that he raised me in, that was a fun conversation. He just didn't understand why I couldn't understand that just like there are many roads that lead to the county seat in any county, in any state, he felt like that's the same way it was with God in heaven. We're all going the same way. We're all going to the same destination. We're just taking different roads and township roads and state highways and interstates to get there. Well, that sounded a lot more progressive than my dad was. But it's also a very common perspective. A guy named Tim Keller, who was a pastor in New York City, was invited to join an interfaith discussion panel because, of course, those solve everything. He was to represent the Christian faith, and so they gathered them all together. They had them on the dais in front of everyone, and they began to ask questions and, and get their insight as to the answers about those. They also invited, in addition to a, a Christian pastor, they invited a Muslim imam, a Jewish rabbi. I know this is starting to sound like a joke, but there's no punchline here, as well as other various faith leaders. And the thing is, during their discussion roundtable, there were a lot of key differences that surfaced. And surprisingly to some of them, there was absolutely no way to find middle ground agreement. Except for one thing. The only thing that they all agreed on was this. We can't all be right. Because all of them taught fundamentally different things about God. How's anybody supposed to make up their mind then about what's right? Well, I, I would suggest to you that regardless of which religions you're comparing, it really all does come back to Jesus. Because many world religions acknowledge that Jesus is a teacher or prophet, but they'll deny one thing consistently his divinity. They will deny that Jesus was anything more than just a man. It was during my high school days, so way back when the crust of the earth was cooling off, I began to hear from uh, one of my classmates about this new church she was going to. And it took me a while because, like I said before, I grew up on a dairy farm. I wasn't used to hearing people talk about things like the Baha'i religion, as she pronounced it. I'd listen to her a while, go back and forth, and it just, well, I, I finally said bye to her. <laughs> but their philosophy and, and consideration was just this. Jesus is only one manifestation of God. Let me, let me break that down just a little bit more. Jesus is just one way of looking at God. 
There's a lot of different ways of looking at God. A lot of different people have shown you God. And, and there's just been a progressive series of different people who've shown you the same God. And we worship that God and everyone who has shown us this vision of God. And they denied his exclusive claim to be the Son of God, come in the flesh as Savior of the world, but their primary objective was to trust. Well, in the words of another great theologian, can't we all just get along? That's really what their religion was based on. Buddhists, on the other hand, look at Jesus as a teacher. The Dalai Lama says this about Jesus. He was, quote, a good-hearted moral man, unquote. The Jewish faith looks at Jesus as a great teacher, maybe even a good man, but certainly not the Messiah. If anything, the only Messiah that Jesus represented to them, in their opinion, was a false Messiah because they knew that when the Messiah comes, he'll end all wars, and we still have wars. He'll heal all the sick, and we still have people who are sick, and he'll provide food for the hungry, and of course there are people who are still hungry. Therefore, in their conclusion, Jesus could not be the true Messiah. He was just someone who claimed to be a Messiah. And even the Muslims will quote this about Jesus. They acknowledge him to be the son of Mary, but he was only a messenger of God. Much like their messengers. <clears throat> now these are fundamentally opposite understandings about the identity and the purpose of Jesus. Let me bring you back to something simple, something that you'll recognize, something you have confidence in because you've heard it, seen it, read it, and even spoke it so many times. In John 3.16, says this is how God loved the world. He gave his only unique son. Everyone who puts their trust in him will not die, but will live forever. It's a familiar verse. We've seen it in ballparks, on signs. It's, it's, it's been on quarterbacks, eyeshadow. No, it's not eyeshadow, is it? That's like up here. But anyway, you get it, you know. It's just trying to be inclusive, right? <clears throat> we've seen it in ballparks. It, we, we've seen it cross-stitched on pillows. It, it, it's even been a common tattoo. For some reason, what we don't see nearly as often are the next two verses. Look at what it says. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it. But in order to save the world through him. It's one of the reasons why at MCC we constantly emphasize the need to learn more about Jesus because we're convinced that the more we learn about Jesus it doesn't just qualify us to to wear a graduation robe that we've learned X amount of him but instead the more we learn about Jesus the more we will feel compelled to love like Jesus loved and when we do people will recognize us as looking more like Jesus in how we choose to live our life as the passage said, he didn't send him into the world to condemn it. 
He wasn't consumed with condemning people, finger-pointing, pounding them in the chest, and, and, and red-faced and arteries bulging, saying, you know, you're wrong. That, that wasn't Jesus. He loved them enough to come save them. And he expected his followers to look like him in how they loved like him because they'd learned from him how to do that. And so because of that, he expected those who follow him to love people enough to come save them as well. So if we're living like Jesus, we're not going to obsess over telling people how wrong they are. If we're learning from Jesus, if we're loving like Jesus, if we're looking like Jesus, then our message, like Jesus, will be a very positive one. He has come to do what we could not do on our own. And the following verse in John 3 is verse 18. Those who trust Him, those who put their trust in Him, are not condemned. But what about, and well, you don't know what I, because nobody ever found out I... Those who trust in Him are not condemned. But those who do not believe have already been condemned for not having faith in the only unique Son of God. God really could not have been more clear, could He? Regarding what happens to those who reject the hope and the help that Jesus offers. And that leads us to this third ultimate question. What about people who've never heard of this? And this is the one that, this is the one that snags us. like that broken fingernail on every piece of clothing you've got. This is the one that causes us pain. What about people who've never heard? Because it calls into question his nature and character. How is it fair for God to condemn someone who never knew? How can he be a loving God and do something so cruel? Now, the typical context for that kind of question, the same question that my dad posed to me, as he explained, there's more than one way to get to Troy, Ohio, than just our road. It was always couched in the setting of some remote tribe of good and kind and gentle people. And if that wasn't enough to make you feel guilty about what you believe to be true, then he would point out some of the neighbors down the road that were the best people we knew in our life. They were the best friends that you could count on, and they didn't go to church. Are you going to say that they're going to hell? Well, that'll be enough to put any son on his heels. Our relationship with God does not hinge on being good enough like our neighbors down the road or like that good, kind, and gentle tribe on the other side of the planet. The idea that God should save them because they deserve it is exactly the opposite of the story of the gospel that tells of Jesus who came because we could never be good enough on our own. Our relationship with God is not because we're good enough. 
nice enough or good enough neighbors. Our relationship with God is based only and completely on the blood of Christ that was offered by the very grace and mercy of God so that we could be forgiven for what we've done to Him. Not because we've learned how to be socially acceptable in our neighborhood. Now, it's not our place to judge somebody that, somebody that we've never met. Neither is it our place to judge somebody that we have met and maybe even admire because they're just better people than we are. But neither is it our place to excuse people that we've never met and pronounce them good enough without God. For us... For me, my peace comes in remembering the nature and character of God again for what it is. Jesus would describe it himself in these terms in Luke 19, verse 10. The Son of Man came to seek and save people who are lost. Remember, that's Jesus telling us about who he is, what makes him tick. It's not just Jesus talking about the way we in church ought to, ought to give our money or what we ought to do in our programming or the deacons or the elders or, or the minister. No, Jesus is talking about Jesus. So learn from him. I'm here to find those who are lost. In 2 Peter 3, 9, the easy-to-read version, because God knows sometimes I need it to be as easy as I can get it. The Lord is not slow in doing what he promised, as some people think he is. In fact, God is being patient with you. Funny how that changes things, doesn't it? It's not just that God is patient. Well, grandpas ought to be patient, and he's kind of a celestial grandpa in a lot of people's perspective. So, you know, well, yeah, we want God to be patient. No, he says God is being patient with you. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to be lost. Instead, he wants everyone. Now, you would think that the next phrase would be, he wants everyone to be saved, wouldn't you? And yet he clarifies what being saved will look like when he says it this way, God's being patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. He wants everyone to change their ways and stop sinning. These are the verses that, reminds, uh, that remind us how God sees the world. And how he responds to what he sees. He's a God who's patient. He's a God who'll do anything he can. Even voluntarily stepping into our world to come find us when we could not find our way back to him. Let me ask you. Who knows the lost better? Who cares for the lost more than God? The God that I was feeling kind of rough about for being mean, for being cruel, for condemning somebody because they had never heard of his story. Have we really convinced ourselves that we know more 
than God does? Have we really convinced ourselves that we love more people than God does? And have we really convinced ourselves that we would be more fair than God? Maybe before we so quickly condemn God over something that we know absolutely zero about, we need to dish out a slice of humble pie. God stood before a gathering of people who were Gentiles. They did not know about the God of the Jews. And in an audience of philosophers and theologians and the greatest minds of their day, Paul acknowledges to them that he admits they're very religious people and even a little bit superstitious thrown in, you know, because they worship in addition to all the other gods. They, they just kind of lumped it together to an idol to the unknown God. Now that story is found in Acts chapter 17. And here's how the apostle approaches that conversation with him in verse 26. He says, from one person, God made all the nations who live on earth. And he decided when and where every nation would live. Now, according to Paul, God is fully aware of every person, regardless of where and when they live. That even means my neighbors down the road. And it also means people that I've never met that are supposedly some of the good, goodest, most good, kindest, gentlest, peace-loving tribes there are to ever have walked. God knows all of them. He knows everything about them. He knows where they live. He knows what they're like. He knows their language. He knows their culture. He probably even knows how they like their Starbucks. He knows their history and he knows their boundaries. He knows what they think is right and what they think is a bridge too far. You've crossed a line. That's wrong. And it says God knows everything about them. But then in verse 27 of Acts 17, Paul makes this assertion. God has done this so that we will look for him. And reach out to find him, even though he isn't very far from any of us. What an incredibly reassuring claim by Paul. God actually searches for people who are reaching out to him. That makes me feel a lot better about God. That he's actually aggressively looking for those who are looking for him. But instead of that incredible chasm between people and God, Paul asserts, you know, God's closer than we actually realize. Because no matter where in the world people are found, God is at work in their lives so that he can be found by them. He's making himself known to them in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. He is a God who loves the lost, who deliberately goes looking for the lost, and who reveals himself to them in ways that they can understand so that they'll reach out to him. That's the God that the Christians worship. And that's consistent with the story of Acts 10 and how Peter came to share the story of Jesus with a guy named Cornelius. Let me just refer to this one. You can read it on your own later. 
Cornelius was a Roman soldier. And he was a good man. He was a godly man. And that good, godly Roman soldier named Cornelius had a vision one night of an angel. Well, actually, it was in the middle of the afternoon, according to him. And that angel, in his vision, tells him that God had heard his prayers and would honor his prayers. And isn't that exactly the kind of God that we hope God is when it comes to my neighbors down the road who were really good people that didn't go to church? Or that tribe over on the other side of the world, on the equator, that makes them really good? Would we not also pray that God gives them a vision as well and acknowledges that he's heard their prayer? But it didn't just stop there. He's given directions to send men to find a guy named Peter and tells him where they can find him. Peter, on the other hand, at the same time, was a Jewish follower of Jesus, and he was in prayer one day when around noon or so, he had a vision as well, and in that vision... God prepares him to have his mind blown because people who don't know anything about his heritage, who don't know anything about the Ten Commandments, about the Scripture, they don't know anything about the Jewish religion, but they're going to send someone to find him to come tell them about Jesus. When Cornelius' men arrive, God's Spirit prompts Peter to believe their story and to go with him. That's the same kind of prompting that you get and I get. When out of the blue, somebody comes to mind that you haven't talked to, that you've been meaning to reach out to, regardless of what's going on in your life, maybe things have been a little tough, and you just know that they could probably just use, they could probably just use a quick text to remind them that, hey, I'm praying for you. And you do that. And then you find out later that it couldn't have come at a better time. That same kind of inclination that you get is the same kind of prompting that Peter gets from the Spirit of God to go with them. He does, and when they arrive, Cornelius has gathered his whole family together, and he says, we're waiting to hear about God. Of course, Peter starts by saying, well, you all know I shouldn't be here because Jews shouldn't have anything to do with Gentiles. And even though it's against my religion to be here, let me tell you about Jesus. And he tells them in Acts 17, or excuse me, in Acts 10, about his death, his burial, and his resurrection, as well as the coming judgment and the opportunity to be forgiven of sins. And at that point, the Spirit of God persuades Peter, who didn't think he should be there, saying the things that he should have been that he was saying to them. The Holy Spirit then persuades Peter that Cornelius' request for baptism should be granted. And he finally says, who am I to stand in the way of what God's doing in their life? God was actively working in the hearts of people who were reaching out to him. And just like then in Cornelius' life and Peter's life, those same people are waiting for us to tell them of God's grace. But how can we be so sure that the story of Jesus is the real story? 
In Acts 17, verse 30 and 31, the New Century Version says it this way. In the past, people did not understand God. And he ignored that. But now, God tells all people in the world, people down the road, people on the other side of the equator. He tells all people in the world to change their hearts and their lives. He set a day that he will judge all the world in fairness by the man that he chose long ago. And he's proven this to everyone by raising that man from the dead. There's a lot of radical stories in the religions around the world. And the gospel message of Christianity about Jesus is certainly one of them. But at its core, the credibility of the story of Jesus depends on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is the reason for our hope. David, why don't you and the praise team join me back on stage. Let me wrap up this way. God created good because God is a good God. And when tempted by Satan to rebel, man turned his back on God and what God wanted in his life. Now, God's not going to tolerate that kind of rebellion. God's not going to tolerate that kind of apathy. But in spite of our rebellion and our apathy, he loved us so much that he personally came in the flesh to our world. And he took on the punishment for that apathetic rebellion by dying on the cross. And he proved that it was all true by raising him from the dead. Those who hear, believe, and repent of their apathy about God in baptism will become one with Christ. It's not just about going through a ceremony. It's not just about getting dunked in water. It's not anything at all about the holy water or anything like that. It is about becoming one with Christ instead of distancing yourself from Christ. It's about being filled with His Spirit instead of being filled with your independent spirit and rebellious spirit that says, no, nah, I'll do it my way. It's about enabling us to have, through Christ, what we can't have on our own. And that new life is lived in gratitude with a messenger mentality, sharing the good news of hope in Christ. And so the question that I would leave you with this morning is this. Will you let God work through you? Like he did with Peter, like he did with Paul, like he did with Jesus. Will you let God work through you to reach those who are reaching out? to him during the singing of this next song while we stand together and sing to our father in heaven if you find yourself wanting prayer there'll be an elder that'll meet you in our room here it has a little maroon sign on it that says prayer room i know that's a big stretch to comprehend that but if you'd like somebody to pray with you you can do that in the prayer room let me encourage you to do that now while together we stand 
We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldo Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at marysvillechristian.org.